Hi, this is Surya Devi, and welcome to A Voice for Love. I'm a world music artist and practitioner of the healing arts, living on the unceded, traditional territories of the Coast Salish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh people, otherwise known as Vancouver, Canada. On this show, we speak with leaders and visionaries from around the world to talk more about what it means to be a voice for love. No matter what we believe in, we can learn to lead from love and speak from the heart so we can usher in true peace and healing on this planet together. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey everyone, welcome to A Voice for Love. This is Surya and I'm very excited today to welcome my special guest, Sarah Landry. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, Surya. Good to be here. Thank you so much for coming. I'm I'm very excited for our conversation. So can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself to start? For sure. Yeah, I'm I'm really passionate about spirituality. And my main focus is kind of crystal healing and tarot card reading. Um, and I'm I'm into all the different kinds of spiritual stuff, like the star seed phenomenon, the light worker phenomenon. I'm all about raising the vibrations of the planet, which is what really inspires me and draws me to your podcast because I love that you've made the focus um, to raise the frequency here and to make the world a better place. Um, But along my journey of pursuing higher consciousness and spirituality, I was misled into a cult back when I lived in Vancouver in 2009. And it was so, I guess, uh, slow you know, the transformation from feeling like it was a good place to becoming an all-encompassing negative thing in my life, that it really created a, a kind of a trauma where for a couple of years after finally escaping and getting out of it, I felt like spirituality was the problem. Like maybe I had been vulnerable and gullible because I have all these wacky beliefs that normal society doesn't understand or approve of and so that led me to falling into a trap and so I feel like I've I've finally reached a place in my journey where I understand the spiritual beliefs weren't the problem it was the manipulation of those beliefs that was the problem and you know that the spiritual ego that the leader of that cult imposed on all of us and tried to reproduce in all of his followers led to such a toxic environment where I felt like maybe the spiritual community is a danger zone or a minefield. So it's it's interesting um, listening to your other guests and your other podcast episodes. It's interesting to me just how many of us have had experiences in the spiritual realm where we believe in something completely and then later on find out it's destructive and how to come to terms with that and how to be established in our truth, despite the fact that our truth is something that's constantly changing. So I'm sorry, that's a little bit more than just an introduction of who I am, but <laughs> no, it's, it's, guess- it's perfect. And we have a, we have a lot to talk about. And I just, yeah. I just want to acknowledge, first of all, that you're kind of like, you're like a legend in my eyes because you're, oh. you know, you're, you're very much somewhat of a, like a whistleblower and you've yeah. um, sacrificed a lot. I know to, to speak up uh, for, yeah. about your experiences that you've had. And I know that yeah. you been um you haven't had an easy time with it I know that you've been targeted because of that I know that you've been accosted because of this I'm sure you've been called all kinds of things probably even the victim of smear campaigns um as well and so I just want to I want to acknowledge you and actually this podcast has a lot of themes but the main one is about being a voice for love which is having the courage to speak up for what's right and to speak up for what we what we believe in and that's you know, I know that that's what you've done and that's what you're doing. And so that's one of the many reasons that we're here. And we've probably been connected actually since I think about 2009, we'd have to look on Facebook, but yeah. I, I think we've been Facebook friends forever. I think so. Yeah. And I, I was trying to figure out, did we know each other from the scene in Vancouver? Did we meet at a party or did we meet online on Facebook? But it has been a really long time. Yeah, I'm not 100% certain, but we definitely do. I think we have some mutual friends and we roll in yes. some similar circles. And, and so it's because sure. this, um, 
So I'd like to talk a little bit about this. This cult group that you were in also has its yeah. roots in India and Indian spirituality, which we're both connected to. So that's probably one of the, the connecting factors, I would think. For sure. Yeah. Even even the name that I had back then was similar to your name because I was Sue Davy. Yeah. That was the first so-called spiritual name that the fraud guru had given me. And what's funny, I still really love that name. It's such a beautiful name. But... Obviously, I won't go by that anymore because it's associated with the cult. But yeah, the, well, Davey, the, I mean, Davy or Devi means goddess, right? And exactly. so you're, you are absolutely an embodiment of of the divine feminine, and that's oh, very well, much your. You. So perhaps another another name will come to you. I mean, Sarah is also a beautiful name, and perhaps who knows, perhaps another another name. But you can you can be Davy always. You can be Devi. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I love it. So yes. I want to talk about, I want to back it up a little bit. And if you could just share a little bit with everyone, like, how did you get involved with this group in the first place? And sure. well, obviously it was probably very different in the beginning than what, yeah. how it ended, right? Absolutely. Drastically different. So just to, to give kind of like the spiritual background, um, in the summer of 2009, I was discovered by a tarot reader in Vancouver through like a really mystical way. Um, my mom and I and my auntie always go to a little mountain town in Alberta called Waterton Lakes every summer. It's kind of our road trip destination. And in the summer of 2008, we went into a little shop in Waterton and my cat had recently passed away. So I was grieving the loss of, you know, my little furry best friend. And I was determined to find a piece of a stone called Iolite because I've read that it helps with communication with animals and communication with those who have crossed over. So we went into a little shop and the lady who worked there was an Indian lady. And she walked up to me and just immediately started telling me about my spiritual energy. She said, I can feel such a strong Shakti around you. And I didn't know what the Sanskrit term meant. So I asked her, what's that? And she started telling me about you know, the energy that courses through us when we're yogically connected. And I told her, like, I, I work with a lot of crystals and I like to meditate. And so we chatted a little bit about our spiritual practice. And I asked her if they had any iolite in her shop. And her eyes got really big. And she said, we had one piece. It sold earlier today. But just before you walked in, the lady returned it. So it's not on display. It's behind the counter. And so I bought this piece of iolite from her and I noticed on the receipt that the address of the shop was 111 Waterton Street. And my cats had died a year, a month and a day apart. So my mom and I had this thing that 111 will be our sign that we're in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. So as I was leaving her shop, she said, by the way, you will be going to India and I just thought, how is that going to happen? Like, I don't know anybody in India. I don't have, you know, a disposable income for world travel. But when we stepped out of the shop, a car drove by with a license plate that said India. And it just felt like, you know, those moments where the synchronicities start piling up and you can't ignore them. You know, this is like more than a coincidence. So fast forward a year, um, one day in 2009, my mom called me and said that she and my aunt had gone back to that shop in, in Waterton without me. And the same lady had worked there. And that that lady told my mom she had a message for me. And she said, tell your daughter to go to a tarot shop on Granville Island. And my mom was like, how do you know my daughter's in Vancouver? And she said, I don't know how I know. I just get these messages. I feel like she needs to go. And at the time, I was working at a shop called Dragon Space, which is on Granville Island. So it's in my head that I need to go to a tarot studio. And there were a few of them on the island. So I wasn't sure which one. Um, but on my workshop the next day, I saw a lady named Denise, who owns the tarot room, putting up a poster on the bulletin board outside of our store. So I, I ran out and said, hey, do you know an Indian lady who works in Waterton? And she just looked at me and said, no, but you've been in my dreams for the past week. I think I need to hire you. Are you willing to read tarot cards in my shop? And it was like, of course, that's a dream job, right? So I started working at the tarot room. 
And my dragon space coworkers gave me an oracle deck called the Ascended Masters Oracle. And every time I gave a reading, the very first card that came up was the card of Mahavatar Babaji. And it was it was crazy. Like I would test it by shuffling the deck a bunch of times and pulling a random card. And every time I would get the Babaji card. So I knew there's something in this path for me. So I started praying to Babaji. I Googled him and found that he said those who seek enlightenment should continuously chant the Mahamantra Om Namah Shivaya. So I started chanting it continuously. Like when I was home, I would chant it out loud. When I was out in public, I would chant it kind of silently in my mind. Um, so a, a few days later, I was on the bus on my way home from work, chanting the mantra internally. And I had kind of like a Satori experience. Suddenly, even though I could see my co-passengers talking, like I couldn't hear their voices. Um, there was an ambulance going by, but I couldn't hear the sirens. And I just knew this was Babaji answering my prayer for enlightenment. Um, it was just a really mystical happening in such a, like I was on the 99 B line or the 98 B line on West Broad. Like it, it's a weird place to have a mystical experience. Um, the but 99. I looked up the 99. Exactly. Nine, well, nine nines to me, nine nine means like life purpose, like destiny, For that sure. kind of stuff. Like that, you know, so yeah, there you go. The 99. Well, the nine, and even though like a B line, like you're making a B line <laughs> to your destination. Nice. Perfect. Yeah. So I, I look out the window and we were stopped at like West Broadway. Um, and I saw a poster for Nityananda. And the sign said, don't miss it with big, like bold letters and an exclamation mark. So I felt in that moment that Babaji was leading me there. So I got off the bus, ran to where I saw that poster, was looking at a picture of Nityananda thinking, okay, maybe this is supposed to be my guru. And just as I was standing there, the lady who ran the center opened the door and welcomed me in and said they were about to do a free meditation. So the timing seemed perfect. I noticed the address on the door was 111 West Broadway. So with my repeat number synchronicity, magical thinking brain turned on, it's kind of like all the signs were pointing for me to go there. Um, the meditation was beautiful. I enjoyed it. The people were all really welcoming and friendly. They invited me back for free yoga classes. And who doesn't want free yoga classes? So, of course, I joined up. And within a couple of weeks, their guru had a program in Vancouver. It, it was actually in Surrey. And it was only like 200 bucks. But for me, that was a lot at the time. I was still paying off my student loans. And quite young, I was 24. But I felt like if it if it's something I meant to do, I'll get the money for it. And the next day, I just happened to have a really busy day reading tarot cards and and earned two hundred dollars exactly. So I thought, okay, this money is meant for that program. And the program, if I had known then what I know now about cult red flags, I wouldn't have joined. Um, but. It was very much a hard pitch sell for people to attend a three-month program in India called Life Bliss Engineering that was 8000 US dollars, impossibly expensive. But at the end of every session throughout that entire day program, people would go up on stage and share how transformational that program in India had been and how wonderful it had been and how perfect everything had been. So I was starting to think like, okay, maybe I need to figure out how to manifest eight grand US, which for us Canadians is like 10, 12 grand. Um, so I had it in the back of my head that maybe this is something I'm meant to do. And when I got home at the end of that program, there was a letter in the mail from my mom that included a little handwritten note from this Indian lady from Waterton that said, you will be going to India soon. And it just made me think, okay, this is the next step in my life's mission. I'm meant to be there. And so I started selling everything I owned, all my jewelry, all my books, all my crystals, um, all the art that I had made in art school. And 
bought myself a plane ticket to India. My mom gave me the rest of the money because she really believed in it too, since she had been there to hear this lady say, your daughter needs to go to India. So it, it all kind of added up. And the program there was meant to, like the, the sales line at that time was get a yogic body and a Vedic mind. But it wasn't entirely that. It's like a bait and switch, right? It's you more see my like face? we don't always use the video, but my eyes just went like, oh my, oh god. yeah, <laughs> oh my god, that's a, that's a, I'm like that's a bad one. A yogic body and a Vedic mind, like oh dear, yeah. Okay. yeah, a yogic body and a Vedic mind, and it's a that's not what it was. It was about and hold on. Just, <laughs> let's just explain just for anyone who doesn't know, Vedic sure. uh, usually re- refers to like the ancient knowledge of the Vedas, like the Vedic scriptures. It's the ancient um, spiritual knowledge and teachings of India, basically. Yeah, exactly. Well, and the, the irony is in the enlightened conscious state, you transcend the mind, you go beyond the mind. So a Vedic mind is almost like an oxymoron, right? It's like a jumbo shrimp. There's no such thing as a Vedic mind. Mm, that's a very but, good point. Very good point. It's true. Yeah, it's true. It's like no mind, but that's the, that's the no goal mind. is beyond the mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the, the program was entirely like a systematic brainwashing. So we were sleep deprived. We got less than five hours of sleep per night. Um, The day started really early with yoga, followed by puja, which is the worship ceremony. We were not worshiping the gods and the goddesses. We were worshiping the guru. And that's a big red flag because you shouldn't be worshiping a human being. And After the puja, there was a satsang, which was basically the guru preaching his discourses to us for an hour. And then after that, the day was packed full with yoga teacher training and something they called LEP Acharya training or or NSP Acharya training. So basically training us to be teachers of his jargon. Um, So the, the whole idea of yogic body is you become one of his Nitya Yoga teachers. And the Vedic mind is you become one of his um, Acharyas. So he's he's created this thing where people pay $8,000 to become recruiters for his cult. And we think we're doing a great thing and we think we're doing divine work, but what we're actually doing is feeding his spiritual ego, worshiping him, becoming reproduced little versions of him. And what's really scary is that it felt like it was the right thing to do. Like nobody joins a cult thinking I'm going to give away all of my self-sovereignty and power to a malignant narcissist. And then I'm going to dedicate my life to making other people ruin their lives for him. We thought we were going to be bringing the power of enlightenment to the planet. And he told us, um, if he can initiate 100,000 people into Jivan Mukti, which means living enlightenment, then this world will raise to a new vibration, a higher frequency. Um, I've always been a very passionate animal rights advocate. So he said, if 100,000 people get initiated into my teachings, it will put an end to the animal agriculture industry. That's what caught me and made me think, okay, what the hell else am I doing with my life? If I if I feel like uh, the well-being of animals is my is my passion and my priority, then there there's nothing I wouldn't give up to contribute to this thing that can help all the animals. And like that, he had different things that would catch different people. So there were there were Sanskrit scholars in the in the group, and he would tell them if you join we're going to revive Sanskrit as a living language. Once again, we're going to speak Sanskrit. We're going to teach Sanskrit to our Gurukul kids. And you can be in charge of driving that initiative. So he had different niches carved out for each of us that made us feel like, okay, if we move here, if we take the vow of sannyas and we become monastic members of his order, we're still living our life purpose. And even better, we're doing it in a community of people who have a shared vision for something great. And, you know, when things started to go wrong, when he started becoming 
verbally abusive, yelling at us, swearing at us, cursing us. Um, when the sleep deprivation went from like four hours of sleep a night to three hours to two hours to we're all supposed to go beyond sleep. So literally no bedtime at all. Um, it happened so gradually and so slowly that we didn't notice it was happening or, or we would rationalize it or explain it away. Like, and I feel like in a normal cult, like air quote, normal cult, like <laughs> that's like an oxymoron in itself. What's a What's a normal again, cult really? Yeah. Oh yeah. This topic is full of oxymorons mm -hmm. um, and regular morons too. <laughs> but um. <laughs> You know, in a Western cult, sleep deprivation is sleep deprivation. Like, you're not getting enough sleep. Everybody knows the science. The brain will lose its cognitive reasoning skills if it is deprived of sleep. People know that. But in a cult run by somebody who claims that they're reading scriptures in a language you don't speak, they can create rationality that you use to justify the abuse being done to you. So he wouldn't say, you're not allowed to sleep. He would tell us, you are manifesting the Shakti of Kutakesha. And Kutakesha means going beyond sleep. And he would tell us, the immortal yogis like Babaji, they don't sleep. And therefore, you have to break your sleep patterns. And that was the other reason I trusted this man was that he claimed it was Mahavatar Babaji who gave him the name Nityananda. And I had had such a, you know, powerful experience with Babaji in my own life that I thought, okay, well, if Babaji led me to him, I can trust him. And you know, what's interesting, Surya, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot over the last few years, trying to come to terms with, do I still believe that even happened? And I tried to deny it. Like I tried to kind of cleanse myself of all the magical thinking and the repeat number associations and the belief in these mystical experiences. And it finally just dawned on me, like in the last couple of months, those things really happened. I journaled about them. I told my mom about them. I have witnesses to some of them. I can't deny that that's real, but... Maybe the reason Babaji led me to a fraudulent guru was that somebody had to go in who would have the guts to speak out publicly against him and remind people that you can be taken advantage of if you give all of your power to a figurehead who claims to be God. Like the, the purpose of spirituality is not to blindly believe everything somebody else tells you about spirituality and to bypass your own intuition in favor of somebody else's opinion about who you should be and how you should live. I feel the purpose is to become your vision of your highest version of self. And nobody else can tell you who that is but you. So yeah, there's there's a lot of coming to terms that I think I've been doing recently. I'm, wow. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 don't be sorry. It's beautiful. And I, I want to actually echo that because I, I know exactly who Babaji is. And just for anyone who, who's listening, who, if this is new to you, Babaji is like this mystical, mythical, but he's not mythical because he's real. I've yes. also had experience oh, yeah. as well. And he's recognized in the lineage of Yogananda. Um, yeah as one of the, so Babaji is like the eternal yogi and he's like forever, you know, forever living. And many of the great saints and masters have had mystical experiences with Babaji. And it's said that he's immortal and that he lives forever in the, like in the Himalayas. And sometimes people have visions of him, but people have these like supernatural experiences with him. So Babaji is real. So I just want to echo that is my exact thought as well, that the reason that the experience that you had with him was real and that you were led into this cult and this situation to expose it because someone like Babaji who is a real master whether or not they're living or in the etherical these masters hold the teachings very sacred and they don't want and they don't like these people who take advantage and who abuse power while using the sacred teachings and unfortunately we don't just see this in India we see this in Christianity we see this in almost every spiritual and religious 
tradition that exists, which is that people take these ancient teachings and they, you know, pervert them or they tweak them to their own, you know, for their own purposes, you know, for their own power and their own gain. And the real masters don't like this. So there is a battle of like light and dark going on on this planet. There is a battle of truth versus untruth. And at some point you got to pick a side, but for a lot of us, that means, and I've had my own experience as well, as well. And that means sometimes delving into these, um, groups of people who are not in integrity, having these encounters with these power hungry gurus, and then we can decide what we want to do with it. And in your case, it's beautiful that you're, you know, you're speaking about your experience. So I want to echo that I believe it was real. And we spoke about this on the phone and I said, you know, it was all meant to happen. And I feel the same about many of my experiences as well. It was meant to happen because now I can stand in a place as a, you know, in my healing work as a teacher, and I'm very committed to not doing any of those things, to never doing any of those exactly. things. Exactly. To, to share yeah. from a you know, from a place of, you know, as much purity as I can muster up in my own limited human form, but, you know, without all of this, you know, we must respect the teachings. And furthermore, I must say my life experience has shown me this over and over again, not so much with me, but people around me. If you misuse these ancient spiritual teachings, you will get it sooner. Oh, or yeah. Later, sooner or later, you're going to get it. The, the mass, yeah. these teachings are sacred. The masters are everywhere, whether alive or not. And at a suit, like, don't, don't mess with it. It's all I'm saying. <laughs> just, exactly. just don't, you might get away with it for a time, but it won't, it will bring back so much chaos and ruin into your life that you will be sorry that you ever, you, you know, you ever did any of these things. So this, this is, this is good teachings and you can help a lot of people. Okay. So I actually remember back in the day, and it's interesting that this happened for you in 2009, because I also had some mind blowing spiritual experiences then as well. I was actually just thinking about it this morning because even some of the songs that I'm putting out now, I wrote back then. And I was like, wow, I was, I was quite in a connected place back then. Not that I'm not now, but there was something, something was coming through me at that time. And it's funny. I actually have a number of experiences where I also thought I was enlightened. And then I came crashing down. (laughs) Some really, really mind boggling spiritual experiences I had at that time. So I don't know. I don't know what was going on there, but I do remember seeing videos of you. And I remember when you, when you changed and you went from being Sarah to using your spiritual name. And then I remember, and I felt right away that he was using you. I felt that using you because you're beautiful because of the way you speak so well I have to say you Thank did you. learn like you're but even like the way that you pronounce Sanskrit like the Sanskrit like I'm lazy with mine and I I default back to the kind of Canadianized Americanized version but yours is yeah. like you're impeccable you speak like a you know you sound almost like an Indian person so that's well, like that's a that's one good thing that they whoever the yeah. that were around you they talk about. <laughs> thank you but I, we, but I, we but I remember you, and you had long you, you had and you had the whole like the yeah. paint on your head and I was like oh wow yeah. like and you were and you were teaching and I felt right away I was like they're using her they're using you oh yeah you speak and your beauty and all of this right well thank you but no and and with the Sanskrit we had to like he would by he I mean Nityananda he would yell if he heard one of his devotees say a Sanskrit word without rolling their R's, without pronouncing it the way it's pronounced in India. So we actually, when I first moved physically to the ashram, um, I guess that was 2015. At that time, he had a program for new ashramites that included one hour of Sanskrit lessons every day, um, alankaram lessons, addressing the deities in the temple, just all the all the things that might be new to a Westerner who joins a Hindu monastery. And I actually really appreciate what we learned in those lessons. Like, it's really cool to have a background in Sanskrit pronunciation taught by yeah, a Sanskrit teacher who studied in Varanasi. So it's really authentic. It's really good. But the sad thing, the problematic thing about that is that he'll do maybe 10 good things and then 20 abusive things. And people who still believe in him, they'll point out like the 10 good things that he did to justify or whitewash the 20 bad things. And you had mentioned earlier in our in our talk, like that I've been the victim of a smear campaign put out by his supporters that, that he ordered them to do. They have called me a white supremacist, 
They've called me anti-Hindu. They've accused me of raping a man. They've accused me of sexually assaulting two children. Um, they accused me of attempted assassination. Like one of the things that they present to foreign governments when they're trying to get him some kind of political asylum is that he is a minority leader who is being victimized by people who are anti-Hindu. And the big irony here is that I love, I still identify, if I had to pick a, a religion, it would be Hinduism. And I think of myself more as someone who likes to glean bits of truth from all the religions and kind of pick what resonates with me. So I'm not, I'm definitely not somebody who would be religious, but I absolutely love Sanatana Dharma. I, my, my Ishta Devata is Kali. I still have deities around my apartment. I still feel devotion. I'm kind of like a bhakti yogi. I love, I love, love, love Hinduism. So it's really crazy that they're calling me an anti-Hindu when in reality, their fraudulent guru is the one who is abusing Hinduism. Like you said, he's misusing the scriptures. He's misusing the teachings. He's even lying about Babaji, claiming that Babaji is the one who's empowering him to do what he's doing. So yeah, the, the smear campaign is real and it's very toxic. And it's been difficult at times to even just go online. Like I remember telling you, um, I don't check my Facebook Messenger inbox because for so long, Facebook Messenger, every time I'd open a message, there would be a link to, have you seen this video of this person accusing you of rape? Have you seen this video of these kids saying that you beat them? Have you seen this this or that? It was always just things nobody wants to see about themselves. But well, I'm very I, sorry that that happened to you. And I just want to point out you. that this is all very typical and everything that you're being accused of are actually things that he is doing, correct? Yes, exactly. 100%. You're, you're 100% right. It's all things he has actually done. And I think because the reason he fled India is to escape a rape trial, he knows how damaging it is to be outed as a rapist. And so that's what he uses to attack his victims. Um, a good friend of mine, who is the only male victim of Nityananda's to speak out publicly, um, before he went public, they threatened him that if he talks about the guru abusing him, they already had a Gurukul kid ready to accuse him of rape, falsely accuse him of rape. And so this is how they keep people silenced. Um, there was a lady named Arti Rao, the first ever victim of Nityananda's to go to the media. She was sued by 10 different American disciples in different cities at the same time. So she couldn't possibly appear to defend herself in every trial. And she wound up having to leave the U.S. and move back to India because she couldn't pay the legal fees. Why? I think she owes half a million dollars U.S for false cases against her. And Nityananda's cult used to tell people, if this doesn't, if you leave the organization, do not become the next Arti Rao. Her life has been destroyed by this. Now they'll tell people, don't become the next dirty laundry. That's what they call me instead of Sarah Landry. It's like a play on my last name, dirty laundry. And they'll say, if you leave, if you speak out, if you've done anything wrong, they'll expose it. If you haven't done anything wrong, they'll fabricate it. But they will smear your name publicly. So I feel like, luckily, thanks to Leah Remini speaking out against Scientology and showing the policy called fair game, which is that if anybody speaks against Scientology, go ahead and make shit up about them. Um, Nityananda... Nexium, like all the cults use this. It's like if you insult the cult, the cult has complete, you know, spiritual justification to try to destroy you. But at this point, like I'm I'm starting to reapply the spiritual principles that led me to the cult in the first place to deal with the attacks the cult is doing. So 
alchemy, transmutation. If they if they throw something negative, how can I turn it into something positive? Um, you know, before our podcast, I was listening to a playlist my friend sent me of Illuminati Congo music. And one of the songs in that playlist is all vibes only. Like a lot of people will say they only want good vibes. They only want positive stuff because that keeps them feeling good. But when we come into this space where we realize we're here to transmute and to elevate the world and to make it better, we can take any vibe and then transform it into something positive for ourselves. So if this group of people who are trying to demonize me, who are trying to make me sound like a terrible criminal are throwing all this negativity if I'm established enough in my truth that it's worth speaking the truth despite their attacks, those attacks are only going to strengthen me. And like it, it reminds me of the form of Shiva called Dakshinamurti. And it's funny because I learned about Dakshinamurti in the cult, but now I see Dakshinamurti as the form of Shiva doing what I want to do, where he's sitting and in a meditative space, in the enlightened consciousness. And there's a group of rishis who don't believe he is who he says he is. Like they've become blinded by their arrogance, blinded by their belief in what they think is their knowledge. And they don't like that this form of Shiva is attracting devotees and kind of luring their students away from them. So they start attacking him and whatever weapon they send, he turns it into one of his powers. So they have like poisonous snakes go to attack him. He makes those snakes just coil around him as ornaments. You know, they send fire. He holds it in his hand. They send, you know, whatever, whatever weapon they send, he turns it into something that helps him. I feel like literally all the weapons this cult is using to attack not only me, but other whistleblowers, Lenin Karupan, Arti Rao, um, all they're doing is exposing themselves as a cult because an innocent organization who has somebody accuse it of fraud or accuse, if, if an innocent guru is accused of sexual assault, beating kids, um, you know, misusing funds. Another thing that he does is he'll launder money through his U.S. temples and then stash it in offshore accounts and in places like Vanuatu and the Cayman Islands. If he was innocent of that stuff, he wouldn't be taking out smear campaigns against the whistleblowers. He would address the issues we bring up. So I feel like even what they think are the weapons they're using against us, they're just boomerangs. They're going back and hitting themselves with all of this. This is, this is what I mean by don't mess with the teachings and don't mess with this stuff. You, you'll get away with it for a time, but it won't last forever. And when it boomerangs back to you, it will be, you know, <clears throat> he will end in ruin. There's no, oh, yeah. there's no doubt about it. It's only, it's just a matter of time before it catches up with him. And yeah. everything that you're speaking of, these are all very typical tactics of whether you're in a cult or just dealing with a highly narcissistic individual or a sociopathic right. individual, these things are all very typical. And it's interesting because I remember the first time that I sort of experienced, it wasn't on the same level, but um, one of the situation, one of the situations that I, I mean, I won't get into it because I think I'm going to do a whole podcast on it because it's just so oh, yeah. bizarre. But um, this person whom um, I was actually helping decided to, you know, it's, it's a, it's a complicated story, but they started telling everybody that I was trying to kill them and I had been doing all these terrible things to them. And, um, you know, they were making Facebook posts. They didn't use my name, but they said they were writing a name of, they were writing a book about being a victim of domestic violence and abuse, like ensuing that it was me. And of course this was all backwards. And I was like, I didn't understand at the time. I was like, what, what is, what, what is going on here? Like so defensive and like, this isn't even what happened. And then actually I heard from spirit. Cause you know, I'm a I get messages from spirit. I heard the words smear campaign. 
And I was like, wow. what is that even? And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, that's what that is. I'm like, this is exactly what yeah. this person was doing to me because it was actually this person who was deceiving me. This person was, you know, I was actually a victim of this person's deception. And it was a very yeah. elaborate, widespread deception that um, took took some time to uncover and was very well hidden. But that was the actual reality of the situation. So these techniques right. are all very common. And so some of these things are dead giveaways. If you accuse somebody yeah. of something and they get angry and turn it around and project it onto you, that's a dead ringer right there that that person is probably lying and probably guilty of what they are, what you are accusing them of. Okay. Absolutely. And again, like, for example, you know, I'm very connected to, um, Amma, who is like my, one of my spiritual teachers for, from India. And she's been, a, um, so there's a woman that wrote a book about her. I think there might be another one too. I've but heard Amma, of it. Yeah. 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 And, and this woman says all these things. I can't say I wasn't there, but what I do yeah. know about Amma is she's pretty clean. She does, you know, she's, she's pretty good as far as the gurus go. Everybody, you know, I feel like as soon as you have a group and you're a spiritual leader right there, you have a group of humans together, there's going to be problems. Yeah. But what she yeah. says about this person, she asks everyone to pray for her. She doesn't make notifications. She doesn't smear her. She doesn't say everyone. She just says, everybody pray for her. That's a really more enlightened response to a situation. Now, this woman wrote her book about her experience, you know, whether whatever, you know, that's maybe her truth, whether she's mentally well or not, we don't know. But that type of a response of just simply telling people pray for this person. There's no, there's no excuses. There's no backlash. There's no nothing. It's just like, it it is what it is. Right. So those, these are very types of responses, right? Yes. The only, the only place where that becomes problematic is that Nityananda will say something like that publicly, but the instruction he gives to his inner circle behind the scenes is the polar opposite. So publicly, he'll say, um, he refers to, to me and the others who are speaking out as the abusers. He'll say, I welcomed the abusers into our sangha out of compassion. I could see that they had these patterns and this negative ego, their attachments, their whatever, whatever, whatever. So hold the space for them to come back. So I still have people in his cult sending me messages saying, when you decide that you're finished with attacking Swamiji, we're ready to bring you back into sangha. And so, and they think that that's what he wants, but those are like the peripheral people who listen to his public messages. The instruction he gives to the Adinavasis, the sannyasis, is completely different. He'll say, destroy her, you know. I actually heard that somewhere. I don't know where I heard this, but I did hear, I don't know if it was through you or somewhere else, but I did hear that he literally tells people to go out online and attack anyone who like, I was actually thinking about this. I'm like, Oh boy, am I going to oh, get, yeah. <laughs> I don't care, but I'm like, am I, I going to get my crazy Nityananda people coming after me? Yeah, You know, because I heard somewhere that he literally instructs people that anyone who's like speaking out against him, yeah. that they should go and, you know, harass them online essentially. Yeah. Oh yeah. And they might, but I kind of feel like because I'm his most public um, antagonist right now, I've become the lightning rod for all of their wrath. So there are a lot of people who have spoken out. Um, most of them have done so through interviews on my YouTube channel. None of them have been targeted with the same kind of false accusations that I have since I've come public. And I, I feel like um, he's making an example out of me. He He wants people to see what they're accusing me of doing and to fear that if they step forward and speak out, the same will be said about them. It used to be the case, Surya, like when I was there, if somebody like you made a podcast exposing him, they would try to get you deplatformed. They would accuse you of hate speech. They would go on rants. They'd have somebody make up some incident and say, well, when I was in Vancouver, I met her one day and she slapped me in the face. Like they would just make shit up to try to make you stop. But I feel like they're focusing all of their attacks right now against me, which in a way kind of creates the space for other people to speak out safely because they're not going to be attacked. So... 
That's why I said, I feel like I just want to talk about just for a second, just for a sec, just for anyone who doesn't know who's listening. Like, so like an Ishta Deva or Ishta Devata is like our personal deity, right? And yours being Kali. Kali. (laughs) Like like for anyone who doesn't know Kali, she's like this, you know, people are afraid of her because she looks so ferocious with her like, she's got like blue, like blue. She's like dark. She's like the dark goddess and she's carrying us dripping soul in one hand and like a machete (laughs) in the other. But what she represents is the destruction of false ego, right? This Kali medicine is not for everyone because it can be like, it's, you know, but you having that, I was just going to say, it's not just because you're his most public. It's because you have power and you have spiritual power and you have Shakti. Like, like, and that's what I think. Like you're a Devi, no matter what, like you have, that's why that Indian lady walked up to you. Yeah, you have that Shakti energy, you have that power. And for you even just to continue speaking up and carrying on that, that shows that, that you're just going to keep going. You're not going to let these accusations and these threats and, you know, get in the way of you speaking the truth, because you know, ultimately that what you're doing is actually you're, you're helping people. You're trying to expose somebody who is actually causing a lot of harm. Yeah. And I mean, it hasn't been easy. Like I, I'd be lying if I said I've been single-mindedly focused on this for the past three years. I, I have ups and downs where there are times when I feel really empowered and we're getting, it feels like we're making some headway and there are people leaving his cult and reaching out saying, thank you for speaking out. And then there are times when it, it kind of dips more that their attacks will start to get to me. So, I mean, as long as we're alive in human bodies, we'll have emotion, we'll have difficulties, we'll have struggles. But I feel like every time it swings down, I'm that much more empowered when it swings back up again, in a way. Like the momentum ebbs and flows, but it's always progressing. And the reason Kali is my Ishta Devata, like the very first really life-changing spiritual experience I had was a vision of Kali when I was 13. And at the time, I identified as an atheist. I felt like there's no such thing as spirituality. It's all just a myth made up by humans to control other humans. Um, That was instigated by my love for animals. Like I went vegetarian at seven. And around that same age, I was in Catholic school we were getting prepared for the sacrament called reconciliation, where you have to confess your sins and become a formal member of the Catholic Church. So I, the the priest was visiting our class, answering our questions about it. And I said, so how come there's um, one of the Ten Commandments says thou shalt not kill, but people kill animals and eat them. And he said, well, Thou shalt not kill refers to other humans. Animals don't have souls. Animals are just created to be eaten. And I remember in that moment deciding either this is all make-believe and God doesn't exist because no God would ever create sentient beings just to be killed. Or God is real, but he's not my friend. He's my enemy. It, it was like this this really clear decision I came to that either God is fake or God is bad. And I carried that until this one night when I was 13 and I had like a crippling fear of the dark. So my ritual at night was usually my mom went to bed first. So I would leave the living room But before turning off the light, I'd walk into the hall and turn that light on and then backtrack and turn the living room light off, then go to the kitchen, turn that light on, then back and turn the hall light off and make sure that I never had to set foot in darkness all the way to my bedroom. And one night I was doing this little ritual of like going forward, turning on the next light. And I suddenly had this this feeling of shame. Like, do I want to always have this fear of the dark? What will I do? If there's the power outage one day when I'm a grown up and I'm alone, like I have to face this. So I turned off all the lights, walked down to my bedroom really carefully, but in the complete darkness, sat down on my bed, closed my door so my cat couldn't come in because I knew he would comfort me. And there was a little bit of light coming in from the windows, from the street light outside. So I took my pillowcase off and tied it like a blindfold and sat in total darkness 
And I didn't, I don't know how I, I knew to do it, but I started controlling my breathing. Like I would breathe in as much oxygen as my lungs could hold, hold the breath for as long as possible, exhale as slowly as possible, hold my lungs empty for as long as possible. I did this for a few cycles. I don't know how many. And all of a sudden in the blackness of my inner space, I just saw two beautiful eyes with a bindi between the brows. And I was gazing at these eyes without even a thought of what is this? They were just beautiful. And I had no thought about it. It was just, you know, when you're looking at something, but you're not trying to interpret or analyze, you're just seeing it in that moment. And I heard like a snap. And the moment I heard a snap, a light came on from beneath those eyes and it illuminated her face. And it was just this beautiful woman emerging out of the darkness, surrounded by glowing skulls. And I didn't know the name Kali or anything about Hinduism. Like I'm a, I was raised as a Catholic girl in a Catholic family in a Catholic school. No Hindu people, never encountered any. Um, but I knew this was divine. Like I, I didn't fear her. She didn't look ferocious and scary. She, she had a light smile. And I understood that the skulls around her weren't evil symbols of death. I actually remember the only kind of verbalized thought that I had in that moment was my eyes are closed. I'm blindfolded. This is darkness. I'm seeing her, but she's within, within the realm of my own, my own self. You know, when your eyes are closed, any vision you have, it's inside you. And as I was looking at the skulls around her, I just had this feeling like, my skull is one of these skulls. I'm I'm a part of this. And the next day I went to school and there was one kid who, who saw me kind of sitting and thinking and he said, you had a spiritual experience last night. And I asked him, how do you know that? And he's like, oh, I'm from Sedona. I can recognize these things. And so I told him what I saw and he he's the first one who told me the name Kali. He said, wow, you had a vision of Kali. And I said, who's that? And he described her. So yeah, years later in art school, I came to a picture of Kali in an art history textbook and thought, whoa, AJ was right. Like, this is what I saw. Wow. Yeah, she's just, I feel like whenever there's a difficulty in life or when the cult attacks me or, you know, whenever something gets tough, I'll just think back to that moment and remember this is all impermanent. Like this skull is just one more skull adorning this, this divine femininity. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. It's <laughs> so beautiful and powerful. And it's just like what I've always understood about Kali is like, you know, people fear her, but if you're on the side of truth, you never have yes. to fear her because I remember like somebody Somebody described me once when I was in India, actually, they said yeah. like Kali is the difference between like the mother when, when you see your child is about to put your hand in the fire, the mother, they yeah. go like, no, no, don't put your hand in the fire. Take it away. Kali goes whack. And she <laughs> will, like whack you upside of the head. Like yeah. she might make you fall over. She might send you flying. She might smack you yeah. upside the head, but you'll never forget. You will never put your hand in that fire again. No, <laughs> that's the energy of Kali, right? It's like this yeah. very fierce, and that energy is very feared in this world. The yeah. dark, the power of the dark feminine. It's actually probably the <laughs> most feared energy on this planet because that is the energy that's actually going to transform all of this part of my French fuckery that we're dealing with on the, on this planet 24 seven, which is a bunch of greedy, mostly men who have controlled yeah. the planet for decades now and have held people hostage, you know, by, by, by controlling them and being greedy and out of integrity and all of these types of things. So sure. the dark feminine exposes the dark feminine brings things out of the shadows and into the light. And it can be very uncomfortable, yeah. but it's a very necessary, um, it's a very necessary medicine. So I would say that Kali is with you because this, you. Is your path. Yeah. this has been your path and she is your guiding light to remind you that you have that, that fierce power, you know, um, yes. there's like Kali mantras. And it's like, it's like literally says like, don't work with this mantra unless you want to like shake up wow. the shit basically like part of my French, like I, I'm so, because, so I like, but, but if you call on Kali, 
she will bring destruction to anything in your path that is not supposed to be there. So that can be very, very, you know, disappointing and triggering and upsetting to some people because you could be in a relationship or a situation or a job and you think, Hey, this is it. And then you call on Callie and all of a sudden (laughs) the whole thing gets exposed that you couldn't see. And that's her showing you like, no, this isn't your path. Like go on this path. That's a, that's a, Hmm? It, it also sounds like this is kind of the disclaimer that I give when I t- talk about Moldavite. Like my favorite of all the gemstones is Moldavite. And it has such a similar transformational, like smack your hand out of the fire energy where anything in your life that's not serving your highest good, you don't have to get rid of it. it it'll ditch you. Like it just won't be a part of your life anymore. Uh, relationships will come to endings. Um, bad work situations, you might get fired from a job, but that job wasn't good for you. And it's clearing the space for something better. Um, and I feel like if if we're here to make the world a better place, we can't do that by fitting into all the toxic, as you call it, fuckery that's going on. Like we have to change it and you can't change it if you're conforming to it. So yeah, cult exposure. And this is something that I, sorry, sorry, like we about to No, 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 please, please, this I love it. This is something that I think about a lot. So we already live in this toxic system where most yeah. of our world leaders, the people that we look to, they're yes. narcissists, they're sociopaths, they're collectively yeah. gaslighting us. We have been collectively gaslit our entire life from the minute that we that we were born onto this planet. And for me, having, I guess, the consciousness that I had was ever since I was a child, I had this feeling there's something very wrong going on down here. I'm like, I couldn't yes. put my finger on it, but it was just a feeling. I was like, what is going on down here? And then, and then I had sort of, when I had my awakening, like I was, I was quite young, like similar to you, you know, yes. I was about like, I, I think about like 19. That's when I found out more about what's really going on behind the scenes with the elite and all of this stuff. And it was just like this light bulb went off and it was like, okay, this is what I've picked up on in, in my entire life. Because even I would watch TV and I would sense the manipulation, even in the advertising, like, it's like I'm allergic to it, you know? I was like, Ugh, like, what is this? Like, it feels so icky. So when I actually yeah. got some information a little later in life, I was like, okay, this all makes sense. But this is another reason why people are so susceptible to these types of groups and individuals is because we've actually yeah. been taught to worship these people. We've been taught to listen to them. We have looked our whole life to these leaders. I'm not saying all leaders are, are sociopaths, but many of them are. Many of our world leaders, many of people, many people in high positions of power. And that's why they're there. They get there because they're power hungry. They get there because they're narcissistic. This is changing. And this is why we need people stepping up into high positions of power who have integrity and empathy and all these types of things. But it is so familiar to us, this type of energy, that when we see it, this type of person who is boastful and arrogant and they have this certain type of charisma, which is what all these leaders have. And usually there's a sexual energy entwined with it too. They have a lot of sexual energy and they know how to use that energy to draw people in. And it's like, boom, and then you add the spiritual teachings. And then the other big hook that you mentioned, which is a big thing with a lot of cults too, is it attracts people who are trying to do something good in the world. There's some type of a sense of purpose attached to it. Like, wow, we're doing this good work for the world here. And most of us want a sense of purpose and we want to be a part of something that feels good or is doing good, right? Absolutely. And Surya Devi, I'm so glad you mentioned that icky feeling you would get watching mainstream media because I would get that too. And I remember one of the things that I did as a rebellious teenager was every night at six o'clock, my mom would turn on the news and I would just leave and put on headphones and listen to music and paint because I couldn't stand hearing all the negative shit that they were saying. And I I knew on some level, this is bad for me. I should not be exposed to this. And so when I found Nityananda, he had set himself up as an antidote to all of that. And so I think this is the trap a lot lot of really spiritually awakened people who might not know what to do with their spiritual awakening will do is they'll find these cultic groups that have kind of a a marketing strategy that says all the right things that resonates with what a seeker is going through. Like, have you discovered that the world around you is no longer fulfilling your higher ambitions? Are you ready to go beyond the toxicity of the news media? Are you ready to go beyond the marketing lies? Are you ready to drink water that's not fluoridated and eat food that's not genetically modified? Well, come here. We've got that stuff. We we have the 
safe, healthy, sattvic food. We have the pure water. Like this was part of what Nityananda claimed about his ashram was, you know, the water comes from a pure well, never touched, never altered. The food is pure sattvic vegetarian. When I started giving him information parcels about veganism, he even said, like, we'll use, we will no longer use any external dairy. It'll be only cruelty-free from the Goshala. And it's like he would take feedback. And to me, that was like a green flag. He'll he'll make alterations to his cult based on what we requested. But none of it was actually real. Like he would tell me, I'm ordering all my Western devotees to be vegan unless it's from a from a sanctuary. And yet he never actually gave that instruction. He just told me that he did. Um, he was still using the the milk from, you know, I think it was called Amal, like one of the biggest dairy farms in India that's just as bad as any Western dairy farm. So he he would make us think that we were making changes for the better. But it was always a lie. It was always a front. So I feel like seekers who are looking for a way to escape from the Maya of the infrastructure of the world that we're living in with this fucked up political system and, you know, abuse of corporate systems and the way everything leads you to be a drone for society. We're looking for a way to go beyond that. And these manipulative, narcissistic, psychopathic individuals who recognize that there's a huge demographic of society waking up right now, they will set themselves up as the solution. Okay, everyone. So that's it for part one. Please check us back here for part two coming very soon. We will continue this very juicy conversation with Sarah Landry and get even more deeper into her story of joining a cult and ultimately becoming a whistleblower too. Thanks everyone for listening. You've been listening to A Voice for Love. This is Surya Devi. You can find me at suryadeviworld.com. I hope this series inspires you to discover your own voice for love so that you can be a force for good in your life and in the world. I wish you great joy, good health, and the courage to stand up for what you believe in. Peace.